Welcome everyone to the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter Audio Cast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 11, issue number 37, which corresponds to coronavirus update number 43. And I hope you will enjoy it. But before we start, let's do the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician and or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. All right, episode update number 43. So I'm going to actually put this out a little bit early in the audio form because there is just some really important information that needs to get out very quickly. But before we get there, I'm going to start with some free thoughts. The Delta variant is a pain in the butt, but our T and B cells are ready to rage war once we have had either natural infection or received a SARS-2 vaccine or both. Evolution of the SARS-2 coronavirus may have reached a perfect level of fitness with the Delta variant. It is incredibly effective at transmission while not being more deadly than Alpha. Time will ultimately tell if it evolves again in a significant way. If you think of the evolution of humanity with respect to SARS-2 COVID-19 risk, it is clear to me that this virus would have been much less deadly 30 to 50 or even 100 years ago before the invention of modern processed foods, chemicals, and stress that have upended human immune health and led to an era of metabolic disease and diseases in general. I have thought about this for some time, and the reality is as such. We are here to some extent by our own doing, and it, it, that it is a tragedy of our time that this is what we are seeing, as America has some of the worst death rates in the world. Some may say that modern medicine is saving countless lives, and that is true. But how many would have never entered the hospital based on a much better baseline health or a healthcare system that provides for more preventative-based treatment instead of symptom management? Ah, these questions that we cannot answer unless we just hypothesize them. So update number 43 is very simple right now. Things are a mess, but death is not worse. That's the mantra of this update. The vaccines are not working as well anymore, hence the fourth big wave. The Delta variant now comprises most of the current cases in the United States, and there are many, many more unvaccinated cases now and less in the vaccinated group, but some are happening with what we call these breakthroughs. To my knowledge, there are fleetingly few reports of deaths in the United States in vaccinated persons. Over the past few weeks, the narrative has changed again with weaker vaccine data regarding breakthroughs. If you had two doses of the mRNA vaccine, you are in a very, very, very good place with a very, very, very small risk of a significant hospitalization and almost no chance of death from the Delta variant based on overall statistics, lest, unless you are in one of those high-risk categories based on age or metabolic disease, then you are at slightly higher risk, but still significantly lower than if you are not vaccinated. Latest numbers, as always, are on the Google and CDC websites. Most states are seeing an uptick in vaccination as Delta has changed some people's minds. We are continuing to see that the Lambda and Gamma variants are not an issue yet and likely will not be in the United States as Delta is outcompeting them. As it stands today, the United States has over 35 million known cases and over 615,000 deaths. That was 5,000 more than a few weeks ago and counting. 
There is still no change in the knowledge that more than 80% of the deaths are skewed towards the over 55-year-old age range, and 94 to 5% of these risks are related to comorbid health conditions. All right. Our death risk still remains exceedingly low once vaccinated at 99.9998% chance of survival. Don't take the extra risk, folks. Get the vaccine if you can. And if not, please at least practice improved lifestyle characteristics that will reduce your risk of a bad outcome. A couple of questions that I want to ask in this one that I hope people answer. Are you sharing what you learned with your friends and family? I know there's a lot of misinformation out there, so sharing could be really important. Are you content with my science-heavy take, home point style of COVID coverage in these newsletters? I'd love to hear a response to that. As always, the Apple... Um, podcast site is where you'll hear this audio cast, but also you can get it on docsmo.com, www.docsmo.com, where Sunday, in two days from when I've actually audio recorded this, there will be a podcast there that is going to be worth your time with the president and founder of the Environmental Working Group, Ken Cook, and we're going to do a deep dive into chemicals, where they are, and how they're affecting us. Okay. I'm going to get into it a little bit deeper a little bit later on, but I just want everyone to know right off the bat, as I poll my local friends in all hospitals for pediatric and adult care, uh, adult care, the Delta variant is causing most of the disease in unvaccinated people, and they are the ones who are filling up the ICUs. Children's disease is increasing only because the children are getting sick now because the Delta variant is so infectious. I have seen zero data, nor am I hearing from my friends, that we're seeing an uptick in severity. We are seeing more kids getting sick, but not, as far as I can tell, an uptick in severity. In my own clinic here, where we have lots and lots of patients coming in, roughly 30% positivity rate on testing now, which is huge compared to the past 18 months, we have seen very, very, very few kids look really sick. Mild flu-like symptoms in the teenagers, almost nothing but cold symptoms in the younger ones, and we haven't had a significant MIS syndrome or anything like it in almost a calendar year. So that's just where I want to start. All right. My current recommendations continue. One, get vaccinated and take the guesswork out of this as this dramatically reduces death and hospitalization risk. Two, follow the links in the introduction above in this uh, newsletter on the written form. You can hit the links and look at the integrative functional medicine approach to remaining immune solvent to reduce all-cause infectious mortality risk. Three, this is my favorite and most important. Live every day like it is your last by honoring your mission to be a great human while you love people around you and while you love yourself. That probably has a ton to do with our sense of immune solvency. All right, let's address the elephant in the room again, obesity. We have continued to see the popular press dance around the obesity subject as we normalize the world of inflammatory lifestyle-induced disease. Human appearance is irrelevant. Let me say that again. Human appearance is irrelevant only in so much as it is a marker of inflammatory disease risk. Skinny individuals can and do have similar inflammatory risk based on the same antecedent lifestyle inputs. Therefore, we need to focus on the nutritional and chemical inputs in all humans, but not lose sight of the massive death, excuse me, the massive death risk that is associated with inflammatory-based obesity and inflammatory-based skinniness or anywhere in between as it relates to COVID. 
When I talk to my internal medicine and pediatric colleagues, a few things immediately register for me here. One, the ICUs are now filled with unvaccinated COVID patients, while the vaccinated breakthrough cases that make it to the hospitals are very rare, and mostly there are short for short periods of time before they end up going home. Death in this group remains rare, even with Delta, and 88% of these deaths are in vaccinated individuals over the age of 65 per the CDC. This is firsthand knowledge from people with boots on the ground and not anecdotal stories being passed around. Remember that vaccination is not 100% effective, but it is vastly, vastly superior health-wise to being unvaccinated. Two, although we don't have clear data on comorbid disease of breakthrough cases, the vast majority of admitted patients were inflamed based on the risk factors throughout the pandemic, and we can assume that this still holds true for the breakthrough cases as the age predilection has shown. There are and will be very rare cases of presumably healthy individuals getting sick, as has occurred all pandemic long, and these will be the ones that are pushed out through the media as risk factors for everybody, but the reality is they are very, very rare and related to host genetics. My friends are telling me that they are seeing more 30 to 50 year olds dying now in the hospital than during the alpha COVID surges. These folks are unvaccinated and most of them have hypertension and or obesity, but a few of them are known to not have any comorbid disease. The reason I think the age predilection is dropping is because the over 60 year old age group has been vaccinated over 85%. So therefore they are pulled out of this high risk pool dropping the age predilection down to the 30s and 50s. That's the assessment of this data. Three, children remain mostly asymptomatic and or mildly symptomatic. There are more COVID ICU children based purely on the volume of children infected, which is very high right now. We are running between 15 and 25% of the tested kids being positive up until this last week when we hit a huge epic peak of 33 to 35%. This is double or triple over the entire pandemic in volume. We remain at only three MIS patients among the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that have been seen in our current clinic population with zero deaths. We are seeing a ton of cases now with only mild disease or flu-like symptoms, as I stated earlier, in the teenagers. U.S. death numbers for COVID for kids is at 430 since the pandemic began in zero to 18 year old age range. That is 8.6 per state over 20 months. Now, understand that these data points are never trivial as death is always tragic for someone. And I could tell you, it is never a good day when we see a child have a bad outcome of any kind. Yet, we must look at this data without emotion in order to keep fear and poor decision making in check. Remember that driving a car carries a higher risk burden for death, yet we continue to do it day in and day out without questioning the death. 2,375 teenagers alone died in 2019 from driving, dwarfing COVID risk. So that is just a way of stating that we need to understand risk as it stands. Four, there is zero evidence that the mRNA vaccines cause any hormonal or reproductive concerns despite the undercurrent in social media world. There are brief changes in menstruation occurring in some females following vaccination and disease as well. These issues are transient and not associated with any known long-term issue of reproduction or hormonal health. 
The reality behind infertility is primarily related to advancing age and poor lifestyle choices that affect hormonal function. If you are worried about yours and or your child's hormonal health, please plan to listen to an upcoming podcast with Victoria Mazes, the head of the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine and uh, University of Arizona. We dive deep into the reality behind infertility based on the science and not conjecture. Dr. Mazes authored a book, Be Fruitful, The Guide to Maximizing Fertility and Giving Birth to a Healthy Child. She is brilliant and trustworthy. The answers to the questions of fertility are found during this one hour long conversation, but I do not believe at this date there is any evidence that these vaccines are causing any problem related to reproduction or female health. Okay, let's move on to the quick hits. This week, we are going to focus heavily on B and T cell immunity as a reason to understand what is happening with the mRNA vaccines, mild failure, and true booster need. First off, before we discuss the quick hits, I want to say that the vaccines are not failing so much as they are less effective against the new Delta variant's mutated spike protein structure. As you will see in the following few 30 minutes or so, the B and T cell memory with inside our bone marrow and our other cells is still quite adequate for viral recognition and then killing in most cases because our immune system is a really, really smart system and planned for this issue. And you will discuss that a little more in number four following. The lack of complete protein binding affinity has delayed the immune system's response enough for the SARS-2 virus to gain a foothold in a subset of the vaccinated individuals leading to higher viral loads and thus symptomatic disease. However, the immune system is catching up and killing the SARS-2 in most of these cases based on the hospitalization and death statistics to date. For me, the greatest risk of a problem, whether vaccinated or not, is whether or not you have a comorbid inflammatory-based disease like inflammatory syndrome. That's where we should be spending a lot of our time working on what we can control, which is lifestyle-based choices that wreck our immune system. Vaccination still remains the best thing you can do otherwise. Okay, number one. This is a slight redo based on importance and timing with the Delta surge and now this new question of boosters. If you have higher levels of neutralizing antibodies post-vaccination and likely by extension post-natural illness, your risk of a reinfection is exceedingly low. This comes from Malapati R. et al. 2021. All the links that I'm going to state based on names can be found in the newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com newsletter or on Doxmo's website. There's a link there. Neutralizing antibodies are the antibodies that specifically prevent the virus from attaching to and infecting the cell, rendering them non-infectious. Thus, these antibodies are critical in the fight against pathogens in previous studies with previous vaccine-related responses, abnormal host microbiomes, stress, and other causes of immune dysregulation can ruin an immune response to a vaccination. Here we look at DeYoung et al. 2020 and Keith Colt Glazer J et al. 2021. So this new discussion around boosters and breakthroughs really needs to be targeted in populations based on SARS-2 antibody responses over time. If you had a poor vaccine response for the first time around or poor post-natural immune response after the illness, then a booster makes a lot of sense to prevent illness. Remember that death and hospitalization are still exceedingly rare regardless of boosting. 
The kicker yet remains the elephant in the room as discussed above. If you are prone to inflammation based on your persistent poor lifestyle choices of a standard American high processed garbage diet, chemical exposure, sloth, or sleep deprivation, and so on, then you will be at higher risk for hospitalization and maybe even death in a post-infection and or post-vaccination breakthrough case. If you decide to get boosted when the boosters come around in the next month, then, as always, it behooves you to sleep well and consistently around the period of vaccination, eat well, and take care of yourself. We should maintain anti-inflammatory diet type lifestyles with limiting the nutritional stressors and micronutrient insufficiencies that can sack your immune response when you consume the other type of diet, otherwise known as a sad type. We absolutely should work on our innate stress and our response to stress. Essentially, follow all the same rules of healthy living to prevent COVID from killing us as we do in response to the vaccine or as we want to respond well to the vaccine. Number two, the Delta variant has made the Pfizer vaccine fare poorly against full infection, preventing but remains high quality against hospitalization and death. I know that's a little bit of a repeat, but there's a reason why. Israel is a perfect incubator of our future, as there are months of data that they have ahead of us on all metrics of vaccination response and variant change. They also use the mRNA Pfizer vaccine across their country, which helps us as well because that's what we used. In Israel, the length of time from vaccination was directly correlated to breakthrough infections, indicating waning antibody-based immunity over time. Vaccinees from January were two times more likely to have a breakthrough infection than those from April. This comes from Mizrahi et al. 2021. They also have noted that breakthrough outcomes are highly correlative to age and comorbid disease association. From the Clinical Microbiology Infection Study, quote, a total of 152 patients were included, accounting for half of hospitalized fully vaccinated patients in Israel. Poor outcome was noted in 38 patients and a mortality rate reached 22%. That's 34 out of 152. Notably, though, this cohort was characterized by a high rate of comorbidities predisposing to severe COVID-19, including hypertension, diabetes, congestive heart failure, chronic kidney and lung diseases, dementia, cancer, and only six of the patients had no comorbidities. 60, 60, excuse me, or 40% of the patients were immunocompromised, which is what I am hearing exactly from our local colleagues. That was not in the quote, but let me finish the quote now. Higher viral load was associated with a significant risk for poor outcome. Risk also appeared higher in patients receiving anti-CD20 treatment and in patients with low titers of anti-spike IgG, but these differences did not reach statistical significance. That comes from Brosh Nisimov et al. 2021. Okay, let me break it all down. We do not have any good U.S. data regarding breakthroughs to date. Our local hospitals are telling me, though, that most cases are in unvaccinated individuals and the vaccinated cohort is mostly not severe, but some have required hospitalization. Death remains fleetingly rare, but the comorbidities seem to still play a major role in negative outcome when vaccinated as it was in the unvaccinated. This is almost entirely due to the baseline inflammatory state of the human immune system that I've discussed over and over again for the past 42 newsletters on COVID. 
We also know that cases are worse when a person has low circulating antibodies against SARS-2 and also develop high viral loads. Reasons for a poor vaccine or natural infection antibody response are likely predominantly based on immune suppression or poor antigenic response, which is known to happen in obese individuals and those with dysfunctional intestinal microbiota. As we noted last year, there is a subset of men with autoimmune disease who have autoantibodies against gamma interferon, reducing viral killing capacity early on, which can further worsen the viral load expansion and or sickness. Once again, we sit in control of what we can control, and that is taking care of ourselves so we don't end up in these situations. Number three, Delta, as we are seeing, is a major contagious nightmare that is now more transmissible than smallpox, influenza, SARS-1, MERS-1, and on par, slightly less than chickenpox. Only measles is a really significantly worse train wreck infectiousness-wise. The reproductive rate, or r naught for these infections is 1 to 2 for influenza, meaning for every one infected person, one to two others will be infected. For SARS-2-alpha, the original strain, that number was three. Now SARS-2-delta, the current circulating strain, is around a six. Chickenpox is anywhere between a six and a 10, depending on the study, and measles is a 12 plus. Therefore, for SARS-2-delta, for every infected person, six will be infected. Those six will infect six more and on and on exponentially. This is the exponential explanation why an R0 of 2 is nowhere close to the infectiousness of a 6, which is way less the infectiousness of a 12. Let's look at how this looks numerically. One infected person with flu infects 2. SARS-2 alpha will infect 3. SARS-2 delta will infect 6. Chickenpox 10. Measles 12. Then those infected people will infect 4 flu, 9 SARS-2 alpha, 36 SARS-2 delta, 100 chicken pox, 144 measles. Then those will infect 8 with flu, 27 with SARS alpha, 216 now with SARS-2 delta, 1,000 with chicken pox, and 1,728 with measles. Now we go out one more generation of people touching people. Flu is now only at 16. SARS-2-alpha, the original strain, is at 81. SARS-2-delta now is at 1,296. Chickenpox at 10,000, again, assuming chickenpox is at 10, and measles now is at 20,736. So numerically, you see very quickly when that one person affects three, affects nine, affects 27, affects 81 for SARS-2-alpha, the original strain, that's why the spread was significant but not insane. Now the spread went to SARS-2 Delta, 1 to 6, to 36, to 216, to 1296, 881 versus 1296. That is wildfire. Hence the reason we're seeing so many more cases in kids that never were really infected tremendously in the beginning. But again, reinforcing as always, we are not, not, and not again seeing worse outcomes in kids. Until I see data that shows me otherwise, I am not going to trust the outlets that are putting information out there that says that kids are more sick. I am talking to people with the boots on the ground, and we're not seeing that. And, of course, in my clinic, we're not seeing that. Number four, let us take a deeper dive into the technical world of B-cell memory and therefore lasting protection post-vaccine and natural illness. This is going to be technically heavier than normal, science-based. So listen if you can. 
But at the end, I will, as always, give you a nice take home. Once you have seen the virus RNA protein fragment as either a spike fragment from the mRNA vaccine or chopped up portions of the natural virus when it gets into your system, your immune system will present this sequence of the um, uh, virus to the B cell in an elegant way called antigen presentation that will develop a subspecies of B cell called the memory B cell, which has the distinctive ability to become quiescent and long lived in our bone marrow or other organ tissues like the spleen or the lymph nodes. This will occur after the SARS-2 virus is long dead and gone. The entire purpose of long-lived memory for B cells is to have the ability to re-recognize the SARS-2 virus when and if you get exposed to it again. The rapid RNA sequence recognition based on this memory allows the immediate development of neutralizing antibodies that squash the SARS-2 virus rapidly the next time around, preventing bad outcomes. What about the variants? We know that the SARS-2 virus mutates at a modest pace. If the SARS-2 RNA has changed its structure during a mutation, let's say from alpha to delta, does the memory B cell still have the immune ability or do we lose immune recognition? Here comes the beauty of the human immune response. Do you remember the stories of people getting super swollen lymph nodes in the armpit of the vaccinated arm? This was a sign physically that the T and B cells were migrating from the, excuse me, migrating to the local lymph nodes of the armpit to exchange genetic material of the virus in preparation for memory B cell development over time. In the germinal center of these lymph nodes, the antigenic material, protein fragment of the virus, is exchanged and understood immunologically. One fate of this activity is critical. These B cells will go through divisions deeper in the germinal center of the lymph node. Think of rings of a tree moving closer to the center. With each division, the B cell adds a mutation to the B cell receptor, which mirrors the virus with minor alterations in the anticipation that the virus will mutate as well. Think about this. I love this part. This is just so fascinating. Our immune systems, evolution, coincided with the knowledge that pathogens also mutate over time, so we do the same thing immunologically. This process is called somatic hypermutation, whereby the B cells have affinity maturation that allows them to specialize to viral or pathogen structures for future recognition. There are two different types that predominate over time. The basic memory B cell, which has a polyreactive memory to a pathogen, which allows for a lot of flexibility in case the pathogen mutation is a bit wider. The long-lived plasma cell is a more high-affinity B cell that has a more tightly bound antigen recognition area and therefore aggressive antibody targeting response to specific previously seen viruses. Both of these have their place in function of immunologic memory against pathogens. Memory B cells hide in our tonsils, our lymph nodes, spleen, bone marrow, and some of them even in the bloodstream, plotting their next attack like a hiding snake in the off chance that a SARS-2 virus, or whatever variant it is, you could pick your Greek letter, mutation variant comes to play. The human B-cell variants are ready and poised to get a head start at the killing viral game. It is a beautiful thing, and the major reason behind my belief that we are okay over time with SARS-2 if we are either vaccinated and or had natural disease and are practicing high quality living that reduces the big four, big four comorbid diseases. This leads me to number seven below from Monica Gandhi, which you'll get to in a minute. 
I really enjoy Monica Gandhi. She's a UCF, UCSF, excuse me, University of California, San Francisco infectious disease specialist who does a great, great newsletter or update. Number five, repeat again with added sections based on the relevance to the booster discussion as above and again. And importance, this is important. A few people are asking about the need to vaccinate if you have already had COVID-19 natural illness. What is the story here? Hot off the press from Cell Reports Medicine, we see, quote, ending the COVID-19 pandemic will require long-lived immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Here we evaluate 254 COVID-19 patients longitudinally up to eight months and find durable broad-based immune responses. SARS-CoV-2 spike binding and neutralizing antibodies exhibit a biphasic decay with an extended half-life of over 200 days, suggesting the generation of longer-lived plasma cells. Now remember, these are the high affinity guys. They will target the specifically known specifically known region of the virus that had been seen before. That was, again, not in the quote. Now back to the quote. SARS-CoV-2 infection also boosts antibody titers to SARS-CoV-1 and common beta coronaviruses. In addition, spike-specific IgG memory B cells persist, which bodes really well for a rapid antibody response upon viral re-exposure or vaccination. Virus-specific CD4 and CD8 positive T cells are polyfunctional and maintained with an estimated half-life of over 200 days. Interestingly, CD4 positive T cell responses equally target several SARS-CoV-2 proteins, whereas the CD8 positive T cell responses preferentially target the nuclear protein, highlighting the potential importance of including the nuclear protein in future vaccines. Taken together, these results suggest that broad and effective immunity may persist long-term in the recovered COVID-19 patients. This comes from Cohen et al. 2021. Okay, so this builds upon other studies finding very good long-term memory B and T cell responses after natural infection especially with increasing severity of the natural illness. This means that in most cases, you are well protected from COVID after a natural infection. However, some rare individuals will have a low antibody response and may also mount a weaker immune response the second time around, as has been shown in some cases. And or immune suppressed individuals with certain diseases, especially cancer, could be at higher risk as well. Predicting who these individuals are is not easy nor possible in some cases at this time based on population uh, numbers. Thus, there is a reasonable argument for COVID naturally infected individuals to get one booster dose of an mRNA vaccine to ensure a quality response immunologically upon re-exposure to the virus. I cannot find any reasonable data or reason to get a two-dose series in these people. Kramer et al. 2021, Sadat et al. 2021, Abu Jamal et al. 2021 are the studies that you can reference. More on the, quote, do you need a second vaccine dose, quote, if you know that you had COVID already naturally. Now we have a longitudinal study that also finds that the second dose has no added benefit for the persons in the convalescent phase of SARS-2. They looked specifically at the T-cell response and found that, quote, vaccine-elicited spike-specific T-cells responded similarly to stimulation by spike epitopes from the ancestral B1.1.17 and B1.351 variant strains, both in terms of cell numbers and phenotype in infection-naive individuals. The second dose boosted the quantity but not quality of the T-cell response while in convalescence, the second 
dose helped neither. Spike-specific T-cells from convalescent vaccinees differed strikingly from those of infection-naive vaccinees, with phenotypic features suggesting superior long-term persistence and the ability to home to respiratory tract, including the nasopharynx. This comes from Needleman et al. 2021. Therefore, if you had natural infection and received one dose of a COVID vaccine, the T-cell function and by definition your outcome if re-exposed again looks great. Thus, it makes logical sense now how to prioritize vaccinating the global population first with the appropriate doses based on known convalescent history. Okay, six. Evolution of the SARS-2 coronavirus may have reached a perfect level of fitness with a Delta variant. It is incredibly effective at transmission while not being more deadly than alpha. The time will tell, ultimately, if it evolves again in a significant way. If you think of evolution of humanity with respect to SARS-2 COVID-19 risk, it is clear to me that the virus would have been much more deadly 30 or 50 or 100 years ago before the invention of modern processed foods, chemicals, and human mental stress that have upended human immune health and have led to an era of metabolic disease and immune dysfunction. I have thought about this for some time, and the reality is such. We are here to some extent by our own doing, and that is a tragedy of our time. Remember that 96 plus percent of all deaths are based on lifestyle-induced diseases of chronic overindulgence of food, sloth, and chemical exposure. Some may say that modern medicine is saving countless lives, and that is so. But how many would have never entered the hospital based on much better baseline health and therefore not be in need of an ICU or a ventilator at all. These are the questions that we cannot answer lest we just hypothesize them, but my heart of hearts believes that that's the case. However, the thought that we need boosters now is an interesting one, and I am not lining up with it yet for two reasons. One, we do not have robust safety data on three vaccines in a calendar year. I have not seen any to date and will wait for some to show up. Two, why do we now think that vaccinated and naturally infected people cannot mount a robust response to the Delta variant moving forward to prevent a negative outcome based a T and B cell data coupled to the current vaccinated person's infection outcome risk? This virus is endemic and likely will be with us forever. So the thought of not getting sick at all ever doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But the reality to me makes a lot of sense that we need to just prevent hospitalization, death and negativity when it comes to morbidity. Okay. Let's explore these. Number one, it is self-explanatory. Until we have safety data that is robust, I will hold at two mRNA doses and take my chances with natural infection while practicing incredible self-care for robust immune solvency. That is me personally, my own position. I'm not asking anyone to do what I do, just telling you what I'm doing. Number two, it's a bit more tricky. We know that we are likely developing excellent B and T cell responses to natural immunity and vaccination that confer an early warning signal and protection against the return of SARS-2. The B cells have memory to the SARS-2 virus, and upon reseeing it, they will begin to pump out tons of antibodies via plasma cells in a rapid fashion, reducing the risk of a negative outcome. The T cells are primed and ready to kill any cell tagged with a fragment of the virus protein structure, making quick work of the virus and preventing a significant negative outcome in most cases. If the virus is now endemic, which it likely is, as it has an animal reservoir and mild lethality compared to SARS-1, MERS, Ebola, etc., with a prodrome of infectious spread pre-symptomatic period, then we are likely to be living with this illness forever. 
Eradication through vaccination is highly unlikely, as we have seen happen with MMR and smallpox. Do we plan to boost ourselves biannually? Is that safe? Or should we really look at this as we do with influenza, whereby the at-risk population is most oppressed upon to vaccinate at the recommended schedule while everyone else practices quality self-care and chooses on their own whether to vaccinate? There are a lot of questions here. There's a lot of questions without much data to make good decisions on. We need more safety data and booster need data to be more educated in our decision. There is some rationale to boosting without robust safety data if you are at high risk with a pool of over 65-year-olds, immunocompromised individuals, people with one or more of the big four, big four comorbid metabolic diseases. There's some rationale there, and I think people should take that very seriously. But the rest remains to be seen over time, and I will, as always, stay on top of this data. Okay, number seven, Monica Gandhi's work. She is a infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco in California, and a well-read author, and I really like her. Okay, seven reasons why boosters are unlikely to be necessary. I align with these seven reasons. One, memory B cells are produced by vaccines and natural infection. We discussed that. Number two, memory B cells can produce neutralizing antibodies if they see infection again decades later. Agreed. Discussed that. Reason three, vaccines or natural infection trigger strong memory T-cell immunity. Agree. Number four, T-cell immunity following vaccinations for other infections is long-lasting. That's historical. True. Reason five, T-cell immunity to related coronaviruses that cause severe disease is long-lasting. True. Reason six, T-cell responses from vaccination and natural infection with ancestral strains of COVID-19 are robust against the variants. True. And reason seven, coronaviruses don't mutate quickly like influenza, which requires annual booster shots. Also true. Whew, got to take a deep breath here, folks. That was a lot of reading. So let's leave you with this part in the quick hits. I think number seven is the most important part. There are seven really good quality reasons to think that boosters may not be necessary unless you have some significant comorbid risk. The take home point overall with infection right now is that being unvaccinated is not a good idea. Being vaccinated with a comorbid disease could also be not a good idea, but otherwise the vaccines are working great for prevention of hospitalization and death, which is really what I care about. Okay. That's pretty much all I got today. Section two is just me telling you all to smile. You are loved and you are good people. And I hope you really continue to hug those kids and enjoy life despite being in a pandemic with some crazy political garbage going on. Section three still is the unifying theory of SARS-CoV-2. And that sort of is my take today um, on what's going on. Don't forget to check out the podcast. So far, um, Danny Benjamins is, is there at number two. Paul Smolens is number one. Uh, number three, my favorite with Ken Cook, excuse me, with uh, Randy Jurdle about the epigenetics uh, understanding and mechanisms. Number four is uh, coming out uh, tomorrow, which is my interview with Ken Cook at Chemicals, what's happening in society, how they are affecting us epigenetically. And it is a great, great discussion. And then you also have access to all of the audio casts for the better part of the last um, few months and hopefully in perpetuity. So that's it, folks. Have a great day. This is Dr. M signing off. Remember to hug those kids.